Hi, and welcome to Critical Myth Theory. My name is Joel. My name is Alexander. Let's get into it. All right, so today we are going to be talking about the, well, the seven books of Harry Potter, as well as, uh, I guess, the eight movies and eight, how they... Eight over movies, yeah. Eight movies and how they overlap. We're, we're going to be leaving um, Fantastic Beasts and the Cursed Child out, uh, one of them being a piece of fan fiction and the other one um, being uh, quite irrelevant uh, to this specific story. Yeah. Uh, you know, one one of them's more like modern era and the other one's definitely our postmodern era. Yeah, for sure. sure. Um, so why are we talking about Harry Potter? So what I think is, uh, I think it's a natural progression, really. We're coming from having talked about Tolkien and then Lewis. Um, we're kind of seeing this, the trend throughout the, the 1900s of fantasy kind of developing and becoming what it is. And the next big thing I think that comes to people's mind when we talk about fantasy is clearly going to be Harry Potter, um, at least in the timeline, right? We got the, the series, um, as a movie series as well, um, it was the most second most popular uh, fantasy TV or sorry movie series, um, and still say even today, uh, mm -hmm. an adaptation I should uh, say. Yeah, because um, Star Wars is up there. Yeah, exactly. And I want to make sure I specify say movies because obviously there's Game of Thrones, um, but <laughs> so I guess our definition of this is very specific. But another thing right there, I think it definitely fills into this this category because in a sense it it kind of carries on the tradition of fantasy while it being a very unique thing. Um, it's by no means a carbon copy of Lord of the Rings, but you can definitely see its its evolution of it, right? Um, and that would almost... Like, I'm quicker to compare it to Narnia just because we see similar elements of, you know, these, these modern-day British kids who are pulled into this fantasy world apart from our own world that exists alongside. Um, Right, so there's this obviously very common theme there, but then there's obviously you were you were mentioning something that was actually quite different than in those two. Yeah, do you know it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to watch that. Um, well, with with Lord of the Rings, it's very much our world is pretty much irrelevant to um, Middle Earth. In fact, you know who's to say our world exists when we're considering Middle Earth, um, and it doesn't matter. Our world's completely inconsequential. Right. Um, whereas Narnia, it's uh, it's very much... Well, here's a big difference between Narnia's um, interaction with our world um, versus um, Harry Potter's magical world interacting with our world. Right. Um, so there's definitely a, a more fluidity there, but in Narnia, it's a lot more... Um, Narnia could do without Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and all the other... Um, Sons of Adam? Yeah, and Daughters <laughs> of Eve. Right. Um, but um, it's it's good that they are there. Right. But Narnia is uh, not contingent on their existence. Right. Um, you might say yes because prophecies and whatnot, but I, I kind of say back, why not just have a different prophecy then? <laughs> sure. <laughs> but um, Harry Potter, it's very much, if you are born into the wizarding world, you are a wizard, and it is wrong for you not to be mm -hmm. a wizard. Right. Um, and you will be going to the school called Hogwarts, uh, if you assuming, if, assuming you're British. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so the the veil uh, keeps getting thinner and thinner between right. our world and the magical or the supernatural world. Yeah. Although in Harry Potter, it's not exactly supernatural as it is magical, which is another thing. Yeah, it's actually something that also gets divided a little bit more. That's true, and it's funny too because I'm just going to kind of bring up this random thing that we see when the veil becomes thinner is this attempt to hide it, and this and this almost like this playful attempt to to show it and then to hide it, right? There's always this element of people trying to peep in and find it, mm -hmm. right? You have a little bit of that in Narnia, but barely. But then in Harry Potter, it's a bit more, and then as more we get more and more common. Um, we start to see that more and more, like with secret identities and superheroes, right? Like there's, there's always this, who is it kind of oh, yeah. mentality, right? Um, and so I think as the veil becomes thinner and thinner, there's always this trying to hide it from the others, mm -hmm. from the normals. Well, there's also I, another thing that it, it's kind of specific, but I think that this highlights the point uh, as well, is that Narnia is very disattached from the political mm -hmm. um, 
realm <laughs> in um, in our world. I mean, that's that's highlighted in Eustace um, on the voyage of the Dawn Treader. You know, he's talking about bringing the British Council into things, and and everybody's just you have a laugh at this absolute. You know, he yeah. he's completely out of his element. Oh, yeah. Um, whereas, a, you know, very non-political place. Um, whereas, uh, with Harry Potter, you see interactions between the uh, Ministry of Magic and the Prime Minister of England. So it's right. um, so there's there's actually that political element that is not there in because it's not straight mythology anymore. Yeah. It's it's um, it's our world. Right. But I think a big part of that, too, is also, if you look at the worlds, apart from humans, Narnia is just, what, talking animals? Mm -hmm. Whereas Harry Potter, without humans, like the, the wizarding world without humans is, what, goblins and elves? Like, there's very few sentient beings that would be able to rule and run things. And so the reason that there's government, more government in the Harry Potter world is because government's naturally a human thing, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so if because humans are in control of the wizarding world, of course there's going to be government. Yeah, and I think the centaurs, um, kind yeah, of ironically, right. well, ironically, I think that they would disdain having government over mm -hmm. uh, other creatures because they're too good for it or something like that. That's too different. Right. Yeah. Oh well. But um, one of the interesting things, and and I kind of want to touch on this point, I think, with movies in particular, um, as we talk about how Harry Potter is a very generational thing, right? Um, a lot of kids will actually grow up kind of reading the same time, almost the same age as Harry, and as they kind of get through, because it's seven books. That's seven years of a child's life going into, uh, you know, young teenage years, and you can you can kind of tie yourself closer to the character because you're you're seeing the lens through the character. And I think a big strength of something like Lord of the Rings and the movie-making production was they made all the movies at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because the stories were all back-to-back. -back. Whereas Harry Potter, they couldn't have done that, and it's good that they didn't. Because of the fact that these actors who are playing these characters are coming back and they're becoming older themselves. There's almost like this... Um, if you, I, 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 don't try to, I try not to evolve my interest in actors in their lives, but I always found it interesting seeing Daniel Radcliffe and... Emma Watson and Rupert. Rupert. Yes, yeah. Um, kind of seeing their their interactions a with each other as they grew older into these series and into their characters, um, and then seeing how they almost acted like their characters as well, even outside of the outside of the films. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a big benefit to the movies is that they weren't done. They were done kind of along the age of the characters that they need to be presenting. I thought that was actually really a really well done thing that takes a lot of planning. Mm -hmm. And also in another way that it's generational, I mean, one thing that Lord of the Rings has, and we were talking about this earlier, is that you kind of have to explore the universe at its level. It's it's like, here's magic, let's, you got to put in a bit of a, and it's not as if it were complicated or, or too high to understand or anything, but there, there's a high element to it. You've actually got to put your head into it. Mm -hmm. um, in that sense. And if you're going to be interested in, in that world, it's um, very much, you're going to have to put yourself into it. Whereas Harry Potter is this, and I'm not attributing value to this, by the way, as if sure. it were good or bad. Um, with Harry Potter, it's very much, um, let's bring the magical world to the people. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let's bring it down to their level. Um, and there, there are some ways where it's uh, a little bit more... Um, you know, you say the words and you wave your wand and it does this and this thing. So it's like kind of a basic type of thing. Yeah. But you're very much, because it's so connected with our world, you're very much hoping for that letter uh, uh, for Hogwarts when, uh, when you're a kid. Yeah, I think, if I had to suggest, I think that the times of which they were written and by the authors that they were written actually demonstrates that. Because you look at someone like Lord of the Rings, who's written by Tolkien, who's gone to war, who's seen war with his own eyes, and he wrote it kind of during the time of this this massive war thing, where young men were not able to go to school, but instead they're drawn from their homes to go fight on the war front into this massive wide world with no real lessons or training. they just thrown into the deep end, as it were, and, um, and having to fight, right? And you see that with Lord of the Rings, where the hobbits are basically thrown into this wide world. Um, there's no classes or lessons or anything like that. It's just... The stakes are so high almost immediately, if not mm -hmm. immediately. Whereas Harry Potter, very different, because again the author would have been in this you know this age of, of you know we're, we're at peace and we're learning we're, 
where um, we're, in, you know, we're she's writing to students, mm-hmm. to people who are going off to war, um, and so the people that are in her stories are actually going to be, um, yeah, students. They're learning things and they're kind of delving into the, the nitty gritty of the magical world, um, and and so it really speaks to the audience and to the authors who wrote it. Um, and I think that actually, uh, again, like, and, and we see the the stakes. I mean, sometimes the stakes are something as you know, not failing a class. And yeah, sometimes the stakes are at the end of the world, or at least the end of the Wizarding World, in terms some terms of Harry Potter. But like, the stakes gradually grow mm-hmm. as the reader kind of grows in maturity. And I think that kind of shows as well in the age. I guess it's almost like this coming of age story as well in the fantasy world, where you know you're coming, you're about to graduate high school. The stakes are a bit higher than they were in grade school, right? Um, so that's fair. Um, but at the same time, of course, it has to have that fantasy element of, of keeping the stakes quite a bit higher as well. So I would yeah. like that kind of theme. Um, whereas, yeah, Lord of the Rings is literally, you know, at the end of the world, at the beginning of the book. <laughs> yeah. Very threatening apocalypse. Well, they're full on new ages in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. yeah it's, exactly. uh, it's, um, yeah, now we've just started on a whole new age. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, it's, um, it's more of a restoration, perhaps, which, you know, Lord of the Rings absolutely is, but it's more, um, let's get back to the way that things are supposed to be, rather than let's let's start this new age. Right. Um, I think uh, I think we can dive into some of the themes. Yeah, for um, sure. That's good. Good timing. I, am, I think one of the important ones to talk about, um, and I think we might have very briefly alluded to it in Lord of the Rings, but... I think that this is going to be valuable for both this episode as well as the next. Right. It's the theme of the Chosen One. Yeah. We can't really avoid it. Um, again, you talked about how it's in Lord of the Rings. It's even in Narnia. Yep. Right? There's four Chosen Ones, but they're still chosen mm-hmm. to do certain things. Anytime you have any sort of prophecies, you get Chosen Ones. Um, but in this particular case, right, like Harry is the Chosen One, obviously. Um I think we can break down what the chosen one is. The chosen one kind of Im- implies this inescapable um, I and uh, eternal finger pointing at this person to be the hero, um, because it's it's not just a chosen one; it is the chosen one, and it's not as if that the is going to be changed, right? Exactly. Um, or that the, because um, there's not a vowel after that. The. <laughs> but. Uh, um, it's also interesting that when you see, let's say, um, and, and we're definitely going to dive into this one in the Star Wars, um, episode, which is next, um, it's really interesting to see that the best of the Chosen Ones are the ones that are unwillingly given that response, uh, uh who unwillingly need to take up that responsibility. Um, or sorry, not unwillingly, but gr- uh, they, they, it's not that they want power. Well, it's, yeah. it's yeah. given to them. It's, it's um, you know, uh, Harry as a baby is marked by evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not even his own doing, and it's not his choice, but it just is. Mm-hmm. And he's got to live with the consequences of the actions outside of him. He's been chosen. Yeah. No matter what he wants to do in his life exactly um yeah i mean it's obviously this um this role of fate and this other guiding hand behind it right and i think that that's because again we're talking about prophecies that's always a very big that's the guiding force so there's no real chosen one if there's no prophecies mm-hmm. right um and so that's kind of the whole point of the chosen one is living up to the prophecy and so there's this guiding hand of fate lord of the rings right had it where um, you know, Frodo was meant to take the ring. He was meant to find the ring, and he was meant to, uh, yeah. Bill was meant to find the ring, and Frodo was meant to have the ring to 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 bear. Um, that's obviously we're talking about something greater than what you can see with your eyes. There's obviously some guiding providential hand going in the background. Um, so anytime we have any sort of prophecy, that's exactly what's going on. And so, because chosen refers to two individuals. You yeah, can't, yes. you can't be chosen unless someone chooses you, right? So when we refer to Harry being the chosen one, who's he being chosen by? Hmm. Now, <laughs> right, and, and and you can maybe look at this from like a you know a stoic perspective of like you know fate is this uh, this guiding thing, this this impersonal force that's driving everything, and and you know Star Wars might even have the same kind of thing, the all knowing force. Um, 
Now, of course, as, as Christians, and, and I know Tolkien and Lewis would have the same kind of idea as us, in that there's obviously a more personal take on things, um, more personal sovereign hand going behind the scenes of these prophecies and choosing people. But it's interesting because choice, again, kind of determines a, it kind of implies at least a um, personality behind the, the sovereign force. It's it's really strange in Harry Potter because it's not as it's it's not as if it were some it's not as if God specifically were choosing Harry. It's it's actually the actions of Voldemort that bring about the prophecy. So the prophecy is stated um, by uh, Trelawney um, to which Voldemort gets wind of via Snape. And then he acts on it, but he didn't have to, and the prophecy, and it's it's stressed that the prophecy would not have been fulfilled if he chose not to act on it. But based on the information, the limited information he had, and the misunderstanding that he had of the way that prophecies worked, he ironically uh, takes, uh, plays his part in fulfilling the prophecy, mm -hmm. to which Harry necessarily needs to take his part in fulfilling his side of the prophecy. Yeah. Um, so it's really this question of <laughs> was it the two people involved who chose or was it fate from the beginning that decided this is how it's going to be and it's going to be sort of an ironic play out yeah. and that irony kind of suggests a sense of humor I would mm -hmm. suggest um, right? and I think again I'm going to pull this <laughs> to a Christian perspective right? I mean, we see the same thing being played out in the life of Christ I mean, the most obvious example of a real-life chosen one is Jesus, um, how he fulfills all the ancient prophecies of the world. And yet, Satan knew this. He saw the f he saw all these things, these prophecies being fulfilled in him, and so he knew he had to go and kill him. But what was the prophecy? The prophecy was that he would be, um, his heel, heel would be stricken by the serpent, but he would crush the head of him, right? That's the, that's the first prophecy ever told. And, and, uh, and by so... Being afraid of this prophecy, Satan had his heels on doom in that sense. And it's it's ironic because he just doesn't understand self-sacrifice and and love in that sense, and neither does Voldemort. Mm -hmm. um, so these are constant. These are the forces that stop both Satan and Voldemort in that way. It's it's um, it's love and self-sacrifice. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's a real Christian illusion there. Yeah, for sure. Um, Whether or not it's intentional is a different story, but yeah, absolutely. I, see, I kind of think that it's somewhat intentional because I think that she pulled mythology from, from everywhere yeah. in this case. I mean, I, my my age old argument is that like any good story is going to pull from that because it has to because yeah. our our um, conventions of good storytelling come from that that very first. They're prophecy. very ancient. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's core to our human nature to understand that prophecy as a. Right, the prophecy of the the crushing of the serpent's head and the striking of his heel. That's a that is the theme of our storytelling today. We don't have stories that, that talk about that don't talk about that sort of thing today. Mm -hmm. Right. Although I might argue that we're beginning to and very purposefully too. But that's those are for later episodes that I'm <laughs> so looking forward to. But yeah, um, the, the best stories are basically just a rip off the old formula. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So getting back to this uh, chosen one theme, is it? Is it the participants of the prophecy who are making it happen, or is it the... Well, in Harry's perspective, it doesn't really matter. It does for Voldemort. For him, it doesn't, because Voldemort's already chosen to take that step, mm -hmm. to force Harry to follow the prophecy. Um, and Harry even uh, he kind of understands this. It's the difference um, between... If it were determined by fate, it would be as if he were dragged onto the battlefield. Um, unwillingly, kicking and screaming and having to force uh, a fight against Voldemort. Or Voldemort would be forcing that fight, I should say. But, the way that he sees it, it's because Voldemort has voluntarily um, and uh, unknowingly, ironically, decided that this prophecy is was going to happen no matter what he did. Um, he has decided that um, he is going to engage in the prophecy, and so 
Um, since it's kind of a choice by that one participant that forces Harry, the second participant, to go out and fight, it's as if he were entering an arena willingly. Um, because it's, well, he's fighting against men, you know, and it's debatable how much of a man he is left. But um, it's, uh, it's very much this good versus evil rather than this, um, than this uh, good and evil versus fate or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, <laughs> this, this is a very tough debate when it comes to fate in particular, right? Like, it comes from your worldview if you're... Um, and even, even Christians aren't exactly free from this debate either, right? I mean, the idea of predetermined uh, predestination and, and whatever else is one of the most widely debated topics among Christianity, um, right? Are we chosen because we choose Christ or does Christ choose us and that's because of the power to choose him it's kind of the the question between the you know, Calvinism and Arminianism is a good example of that um, it's the same kind of battle going on right um, but at the end of the day how practical is all that information yeah. right how practical would it have been for Voldemort to know that he was being led by the hands of fate or by his own will he still would have done what he'd done mm -hmm. right um would that have changed his mind on how he did things? Who knows? That's a, I mean, that's... That's a good point to bring up. Right. Yeah, he would have done the same thing either, either way, but perhaps differently. <laughs> um, because because he is... Um, he will always be what he has decided to be, which is exactly what it is, because it's the choice that matters. It's, in the second book, Dumbledore says to Harry, it's your decisions is, is not so much what the, the hand that you're dealt that matters <laughs> in terms of your skills and your abilities. That matters. But how are you going to use them? Which way are you going to go? How are you going to use those um, it, the, the forks uh, in the road? Like, mm -hmm. where are you going to go with this? Yeah. And he chooses. Um, you know, he's got all these elements, the, the Gryffindor and the, and the Slytherin and the Ravenclaw uh, element all to him. And, Maybe the Hufflepuff, but I don't think that was really specified by the Sorting Hat. But he's got these elements to him. He always picks the courageous path. He yeah. always picks the heroic path. Um, and not to say that one of the house's values is better than the other, but in, in the case of heroism, it's courage that is needed. Right. Um, remind me again if I'm wrong. Is there not a section of the books that... Harry wrestles with the idea that he could have very easily turned out to be like Voldemort, on um, a similar path. And... Yeah, that that was um, in the in the second book. He had well, he's able to speak with snakes, um, parcel tongue, in right. which he gets, um, he kind of gets um, uh, because Voldemort um, marked him, essentially. So he gains. So there's a piece of Voldemort inside him. There's right. a piece of evil inside of him. Um, almost like a yin-yang type of thing. Right. And he's able to then speak with snakes, and so it's... Uh, Ron even says um, that it's, it's not associated with anything good. <laughs> Usually, it's the bad wizards who can speak with snakes, and, yeah. you know, Salazar Slytherin being a pretty sketchy guy himself, the founder of the Slytherin house. Well, I think... Um, at one point, Ron says, because this is the age-old kind of, you know, all SRP kind of... Uh, the, oh, yeah, all uh, right? SRP. Right. He, would be, he would basically say, you know, not all bad guys... No, not all Slytherin are bad guys, but they're all bad guys are Slytherin. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There wasn't a wizard who's gone bad that wasn't Slytherin. Right? Um, Which, you know, ironically, <laughs> at the end of that book, Quirrell being a Ravenclaw. Right. Know, he's... he's uh, he went bad, and uh, there was talk about Sirius Black before they thought that he went bad and, right yeah and and uh, what's his name peter pettigrew he he was a gryffindor who went bad oh, years ago that's right so that's right. so you so know well, it's, yeah. well it's not true but it definitely uh yeah but i think that's something that uh we can talk about um uh, is sort of slytherin and gryffindor um sort of this uh the values of slytherin versus the values of gryffindor um because you know through, throughout the books we're kind of team gryffindor and um, you know, fight against Team Slytherin. Hmm. Um, kind of naturally so, seeing as our protagonists, our main protagonists, um, most of them are in Gryffindor. Um, and between the three, all, th all three of them are in Gryffindor. Yeah. 
Um, but I, I kind of wanted to talk about this because I don't think that in the books Slytherin is dealt, I don't want to call it an un, I, I don't want to say that they were dealt an unfair hand. I think they needed to be the antithesis. Sure. But their values were at their worst during the during the uh, time that the books are placed. Kind of thinking about this, actually, I think I almost want to twist your argument differently. Because what I would say is, it's almost like a personality test, where you have your primary and your secondary, right? Mm. Um, so something like ambition and power are good secondary motivations, never good primary motivations. Courage and responsibility are good primary motivations. And mm, the moment you switch really those around, yeah, the moment you switch those around and you make ambition and power your primary motivation, then suddenly it corrupts you. Yeah. No, actually, I, I totally agree with that. Um, it's almost making it like your power source, whereas courage and responsibility should be your power source. They're both of them going to be very potent and necessary ambition and power are good things but again making them your making them on the top instead of putting them in the appropriate yeah. place the the thing is um when we're seeing uh, i at the beginning of the origins between a salazar slytherin and godric gryffindor it's sort of they, they are the closest of friends and i think that that was when things were doing well mm -hmm. um you have you have some of those um things that tilt towards darkness sooner than what is light, right. such as ambition and power, and those things that tilt towards what is light sooner than darkness, such as courage and responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that without each other, um, one turns innocuous and useless, and the other one turns uh, tyrannical. So ambition and power becomes tyrannical when it when it's without the use of anything good, such as courage and responsibility, let's say, yeah. uh, which is what Gryffindor seems to uh, be the exemplar of. But courage and responsibility, what's the, what's the point if you, if you have no power to be courageous over or against anything, or no power to, be, to have any responsibility for anything? To even, even kind of further this conversation into the other houses too, um, I was talking earlier about how we see kind of Harry, who is the, the Slytherin stand-in for Gryffindor, right? He was almost chosen to be Slytherin until he decided to choose Gryffindor. And then I would argue that Hermione is kind of the Ravenclaw Gryffindor, yep. and, and, and Ron is the Hufflepuff Gryffindor, right? Yep. He represents that personality kind of perfectly. But what I would suggest then is that courage and responsibility are actually kind of the, they are the building block, right? They are the core, the, the cornerstone of the others, right? Because knowledge without courage and responsibility, I mean... Ravenclaw wasn't at all other than what do we see like we saw Luna but yep. there was no other characters that were really involved in the takeover of the main plot going on they were hiding behind their books there's no courage or responsibility in, in, in what they were doing they were just gathering knowledge yeah right and so it's maybe not you know active evil but it's passive evil right mm. because not living up to that responsibility of something will be yeah you're negligent and same thing with Hufflepuff and their um, loofness and their... Um, I, I, they I, might have a propensity towards sloth. Yeah, exactly. Or gluttony or without, something like without that. Without courage and responsibility, they themselves fall into the same kind of category of of even passive evil, but still. And um, to deal Hufflepuff a good hand, I kind of think that at their best, they sort of have this Epicurean kind of content mm -hmm. with um, just being happy with what they have and showing good to others which i actually can't stress enough that is really really good quality to have yeah which is just you know this community love each other live contently yeah you know don't want don't want more than you need but that i think that that community when it's given or when it's shine a light on by responsibility and it doesn't live up to it it fails morally Oh yeah. Right, and I think that that I mean I'm <laughs> I'm gonna bring bringing back a lot of content to Lord of the Rings and and the Hobbits, so bear with me. Um, we already have, and yeah. uh, they already know. <laughs> so like the Hobbits kind of represent that, um, yeah, that kind of peaceful, happy living of contentment. Yeah. Right. We have no adventures here. We're we're all very happy with where we are, but every single time Bilbo is wrestling with his inner personalities, he's he's always talking about those Tukish moments when his courage kind of takes over 
and it's almost brought upon in a good light and it's the entire book is this wouldn't have happened if Bilbo never took on his Tugish courageous side mm-hmm. right and so that courage is always shown on a good light um, in and be, in and above and beyond the uh, the peaceful living because I mean again Tolkien's gonna show this in the, in the war what's the point of living a peaceful life if you don't have the the, the courage to fight for it mm-hmm. right um, and I think we see that too in Harry Potter right uh, these students know that things are going on badly but yet there's only three of them that are ever really doing anything about it mm-hmm. right and I might say that it's probably not the best system to have four houses with <laughs> some very specific values not benefiting from each other right there's I think obviously that it would a lot be, of overlap and whatever yeah. else too right so it would be really nice to see them work together which you do see at the at the end with mm-hmm. the exception of maybe Slytherin who is given that choice of do you want to be on side A or side B yeah um like, do you want to do you want to cooperate with us or do you want to be against us and you've got to choose and we are giving you time to choose but um, at least for the other three houses at least in a time of crisis they come together even so during during times in prosperity let's say for Hogwarts they seem to be pretty uh, against each other and it's kind of no wonder you know points to Gryffindor or points to Ravenclaw take some points away from Hufflepuff or something like that um, and and Quidditch is, is almost competitive to the point of religious experience it's yeah but that's just sports in general that's a, that's a good analogy for sports in our real life right? yeah oh yeah but but I just kind of wonder like oh man no, nothing against Rowling it's more like against the characters within the books itself which is ironic yeah. you know you could treat the world as a living thing yeah. apart from the author Exactly. Um, but I just kind of wonder, you know, you you founding fathers of the school, you you really set this one up for for a bit of failure, not teaching uh, not teaching uh, yeah. all these. Uh, well, that's the thing. I think that without without courage and responsibility, all of them have moral shortcomings, which is ironically yeah. the 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 those two things are what Gryffindor is. So it's almost like Gryffindor has the. Um, has the responsibility, if you will, of moral uprightness more so than the other two because they represent the core of morality mm. and the courage and responsibility. But no, it could be. But if I kind of was thinking we'd talk about Slytherin a little bit more specifically and sort of their extremes, um, the Death Eaters, you know, like the Death Eaters uh, party versus the the purity? Gryffindor party. No, oh, uh, oh. purity, purity after. You know, uh, so Death Eaters talk, um, and uh, some of the extreme Slytherins, which you know, there's plenty of them in the books. Um, their version of purity is very different from our protagonists' version of purity. Um, and one of them that we see is in the form of um, uh, in the form of uh, blood and lineage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example. Uh, in terms of in terms of uh, the families there's the sacred 28 a bunch of which if not most are in Slytherin um, because Slytherin was very concerned with having pure blood now at the time it was um, let's make sure that there isn't any traitors because um, because you know times of um, uh, killing killing people who had magic um, now I, I'm pretty sure that Slytherin himself probably had some prejudice against um, uh, Muggles himself, but mm-hmm. uh, in this case, it's kind of turned to be anyone who's not pure blood is worse than me. Right. Um, and these these are very um, and I'm not saying because I I don't want to say that it's invaluable entirely, because there is deep rich history with with family lineage as well that you d- that you don't kind of that you don't want to take lightly either but it's it's also very outward you know it's it's whatever you you have you have nice lineage and therefore you have influence it's it doesn't worry about the moral character yeah i mean lineage should never determine value exactly right Um, because we all of us come from (laughs) i mean we, we 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 believe that we all of us come from one particular uh person yeah right and and so to even suggest that there's um, more than one race is kind of um, it's just incorrect because we are all of us or a better version race. of that race exactly there's no intrinsic value in 
who our ancestors were. Yeah, but it is cool historically. Sure, and there there can be value gained from it, but it's not value intrinsically. It's not as like personal value, right? Mm-hmm. No person is better, but there's I'd say something to be gained from um, something to be gained from the historic bloodline of households in insofar as maybe role or or like roles is a good thing because roles and value are a very different thing. Right? You can be yeah. a, you can be a a garbage man or you could be a king and yet you're still going to have the same intrinsic value as a human being um <laughs> and so if you're i mean this is how historically speaking would have nothing always against been. kings of course no of course um but that's kind of my point is that the rules and the values shouldn't and often they do right we see that kind of being the case um people attribute a role and and represent it as a as a greater or lesser value, right? Because especially in terms, of, especially in that example, a king would almost assume that he's great greater value because he's a king. Mm-hmm. But it's really just the role that he plays. A good king recognizes that he has just as much value as as the quote unquote lowliest peasant, because really they're not, they're all of them made from mm-hmm. dust. Yeah, equality of souls. Yeah, exactly. Um, equality of souls, but not necessarily the same roles. Yeah. Which is kind of a nice little rhyme. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and, well, and we're talking about Harry Potter's um, purity. It's it's very much from the heart, you know. He's got um, friends around him, and he's always looking out for them, and they're always looking out for him. Mm-hmm. And he's protected by his mother's sacrifice, which in itself was a very pure thing to do. Right. And she was a very pure person as well. Like, he's surrounded, in in a sense. Like, there's there's an element of darkness in him that, that is foreign to him, but it is in him. Right. But he, what what he has in his, in the dark elements of him, such as Parseltongue, he uses for good. Right. Um, Would you say that there's a resemblance then in terms of like the not the Nazi ideal of Nietzsche's Ubermensch, the Superman, in terms of Slytherin and and the and the, uh, the Death Eaters, versus the Superman, as uh, as the comic book artists and authors have taken to be, you know, submitting to a greater more moral value, not creating their own. Ooh. so you're talking about let's say. Um, Nietzsche's Superman versus America's Superman, for yeah, example. Exactly. Um, because that's that's kind of the, I would say, the same kind of thing, right? Like, Malfoy's and, and Voldemort's of the world are basically de- determining what is good and evil based on their what, what works for them, because they're above good and evil, almost. They determine it. Right? Well, Vol- Voldemort, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I say Malfoy's because he's just another... He's kind of the, the stand-in uh, for our heroes... Um, rival, as yep. it were. Right? Yep. Whereas Harry, his purity doesn't come from himself. He's not determining his own purity. We as the readers see him submitting to a greater good. And so we recognize, you know what, he's actually submitting to this higher moral authority that's greater than himself. It was exactly what we're talking about um, when we're saying that the good person does not put himself as the arbiter between good and evil. Mm-hmm. He doesn't um, say that he will give himself he will give what is due to good to himself in order for him to later do what is good. Chances are he doesn't play out that way. And chances are if you're doing something good, it's not going to benefit you all that much. Right. Um, yeah. Which I, th- I think is a good slide into one of our other topics because I think this kind of touches on a previous conversation we had with Lewis where he often would talk about, um, yeah, right, you're saying that doing the greater good doesn't always lead to our own personal benefit um and yet here we have in harry potter this theme of breaking the rules but for the greater good mm, yeah and that happens all the time um and it would make Kant uh, turn around in his grave oh. <laughs> should he read this series for that reason right how many times does uh dumbledore for example close a blind eye to things going on that are rule breaking but he knows that they're for the greater good especially when he gives i mean the example i give is the saving of buckbeak and uh Serious Black. He gives a time turner to Hermione and pretends that he didn't see anything. <laughs> yeah. Right? Any any good Kantian... If, if, if uh, Dumbledore was a Kantian, none of that would have happened. Oh, yeah. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you could have uh, saved him or not. You have to save him by lawful means. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> right? Which is definitely not how we did it. Yeah. Um, but even then, I would still suggest that it wasn't for their own personal gain. Yeah. Right? We see Harry how many times he didn't. Yeah, maybe he was breaking the rules by even let's say even in the very first one. Right? He goes and breaks the rules of going down where he's told not to go, past yeah. Fluffy. Right? Well, he's risking his life. Yeah, it's, it's not, not. It's not, not as if it's not as if he's like going on a bloody adventure. It's like no, you're you are probably there is a high likelihood that you, eleven year old, are going to die. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's there's another one that uh, to point out in the Order of the Phoenix is um, he defies Dolores Umbridge, uh, and well, he and Hermione, and they escape to the Forbidden Forest. So, you know, there's there's a multitude of unlawful things that they have just done. Mm -hmm. But it's to fight Voldemort at the Ministry of Magic, risking both their lives and probably their chances of returning next year if the Ministry is still in control. Right. Um, so th these are the types of breaking the rules, but um, but not for for their own sake, but... For the for well the greater good, yeah. uh, and this is this is the true definition of breaking <laughs> breaking the rules for the greater good. Not as if it were like for the greater good. You right. know, it's uh, it it will as if it were my definition of what were what was the greater good. But this is actually a genuine um, selfless breaking the rules. Although there's an ironic thing here. I guess the the kind of the stick in the mud to this conversation, of course, is going to be Ron's twin brothers. Mm, yeah. who do break the rules for their own personal gain and at the same time sometimes they line it up with a greater good right with the, with a, uh, with the a, a Dolores for example when and, they when they crash the exams and, and that whole thing they obviously did it for their own pleasure yeah but I also don't think that there's was, a just element to yeah, it and you know what I don't so. think I don't think that there's anything in the series where you could say that they're bad they're mischievous um, <laughs> they're but breaking the rules they're breaking the rules but but they're not, um, it's not malicious, ever. But, um, but it's selfish, which makes it malicious, I would suggest. No. <laughs> I, I, I think that malicious is a little, like, I see what you're getting at. I think right. malicious is a little bit too harsh of a word. Right. But selfish, perhaps, I would say. So, like, for example, right, we see them giving the Marauder's Map to Harry, <laughs> right? And obviously they would have used it to prank people and go around and do whatever else and, and avoid punishment for their uh, avoid just punishment for their uh, mischievous actions whereas yeah. Harry of course takes it on and doesn't do so he instead uses it for the greater good yeah although you know sometimes <laughs> not there's a lot of temptation with that mm -hmm. kinds of power or with that kind of power like he he sneaks into Hogsmeade at one oh, point that's right, um, that's right. It, like he he uses the, the Marauder's map is definitely that ambiguous type of item that he has he can use it for good or for evil and he uses it for both it's it's a very tempting thing that he has mm -hmm. and i kind of want to point to the words of the marauders map <laughs> it's uh, i solemnly swear <laughs> that i'm up to no good yeah it's like you're bound technically speaking by an oath and i'm sure that it has power in terms of magic but yeah. even if it's just a joke it's like what's that no good is it a is it a smaller <laughs> good or a greater good because <laughs> then harry can never use it for good it is clearly an item of mischief mm -hmm. um and and ironically this item of mischief um ends up being used for good at least often enough for it not to be considered um, a malicious item, but right. definitely a mischievous one. I'm going to go off on a completely different tangent here, and I apologize. Let's go um, for I'm it. just getting kind of this thought in my head. So, in Norse mythology, when you get someone like Loki, who is mm. actually the god of mischief, but during the later stages, and people will often point to the demonization of Loki in terms of the Christian culture coming into the Norse mythology. Sure, we can we can talk about that discussion, but it's kind of cool to see the, the lineage of or the, sorry, the timeline of Loki's progression. Because he doesn't start off as evil. At the end of the... At, by the time Ragnar comes around, he is full-on evil. But he starts off as just simply mischievous. Right? Stealing Freya's hair and whatever else he does. As simply mischievous, never really malicious. Eventually, I can't remember which event is the one that kind of... You would kind of draw the line and say, no, that was, that was actually malicious, not mischievous. Uh, but there is certainly this progression that Loki has as a character in Norse mythology... Regardless of what the movies will tell you in terms of Marvel superheroes, um, but actual Norse mythology, yeah, you get into the, the background of Loki as a uh, 
mischievous eventually becoming malicious character, which is always an interesting uh, role. But anyways. That's really cool. And then I guess um, Fred and George kind of, they they sort of move the other way with it. Mm-hmm. And they they use, um, what is it? Like uh, they were uh, Weasley Wizard Wheezes. They, they use it on... Um, almost as this fight for justice type of thing. Now, it goes overboard, like <laughs> you wouldn't believe sometimes, but it actually ends up being used for good far more often than it right. is used for, for evil. Um, and even then, it's kind of murky as to whether you <laughs> call it good or evil. Um, because, you know, there's love potions, and then there's like a weird... Like, oh, there's, so, there's, there's a bunch of weird stuff um, yeah. going on with it. But it's humor. You know, it's and humor bends rules. Yeah, that's um, by its definition, it's going to be antithetical to good. <laughs> but humor, to justness. Yeah, but fair. humor, well, good, good and 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 truth can be pretty serious. But I don't think that um, I I don't think that it's necessarily against humor. Um, and I don't think that humor. It, I think humor is overall a good thing. It could be used poorly and it could be used badly. It is once again a tool. Um, but I don't know where I heard this, and I think it's right that um, humor is, well, that truth is the, um, nothing makes people laugh like the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so humor and the truth actually go together a lot, because if it isn't relevant, and if it's false, you're probably not going to laugh at it, it's just going to be like, hang on, that's not true. Yeah. Um, but if it's pointing out uncomfortable truths, and if it's poking at things... Um, which I think a lot of these inventions of, of um, Fred and George do. Um, just kind of poking at things and poking at weak spots all the time. I'll challenge that, though. Constantly. Well, I, I might say that... Um, okay, I, I'm excited for that. But um, constantly <laughs> challenging um, all, these, uh, all these different... Um, I, I, a lot of these weaker and perhaps tyrannical elements bringing down the, right. the bad parts of order. Um, some of the tyrannical parts of order, there is a, a good use of humor. Right. It, it can be destructive, and right. it often is. Um, but there's a good there there's a good use in it, and I think that Fred and George overall end up using it more for good than they do for bad. Sure. Yeah, I mean humor is also a very um, what I would suggest a very good humbler. Oh, that's a good word. Oh, yeah. Right, but like... So, because I'm going to use examples of, of... Biblical examples of humor. But that's that's not contradicting what I said. No, it's not contradicting at all. I'm actually reinforcing your point here. I'm going to contradict it later. Don't worry. Oh, Maybe. Yes. Let's see. Um, so, to reinforce your point, um, we got the biblical examples of humor. Um, we actually just recently had a sermon series on uh, the book of Esther. And it was kind of taken from the perspective of being a satire. Uh, right mm. it's basically god pointing down to this mighty king uh, ahasuerus xerxes mighty king of persia and kind of showing his his faults and how easily he's overthrown by his wife's um uh, posture of saying no and whatever else like there's a lot of comedy involved in that story in just the irony of things going on and um, there's almost divine providential comedy going on in the background or another example of that would be um, God being very sarcastic with Job as a good way of humiliating him or humbling him um, right where he basically he's very sarcastic right Job kind of finishes what he has to say his friends also finish what he has to say and God steps in and says so Job before I answer your question let me how, how about you answer mine and then he says I've uh, seen your resume yeah. so uh, let's go over it a quick second well he kind of it's very sarcastic he's like you know, where were you when I laid the uh, the oceans from my hands? You know, surely you were there when I put Leviathan in the waters. I mean, clearly you you know what you're talking about. Yeah. He's being extremely sarcastic to make him prove a point of being just extremely humble. Um, now, for the little uh, poking a hole in your theory of how humor... Wait, what did you say? Humor that has nothing, truth in it. Or nothing makes people laugh more than the truth. Yes. Why do ducks have tail feathers? Um, to cover their butt wax. <laughs> See, uh, <laughs> it's comical, but it's not truthful. 
<laughs> okay, I'm sorry. It's just word. Uh, okay, it is but, but you know, it's 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 a dad joke. Yeah. Now there, yeah. Anyways, um, neither here nor there. Let's get back to Harry Potter. <laughs> um, we have a few more themes, but I think we should probably just touch on some of the more fun ones. What do you think? Oh man, I won't go for too long. Okay, okay. But we have quite a few points, so maybe we can get back to Harry Potter at some point in the future. Oh That's yeah. Fun. Um. Well, I think. Let's talk, well, let's get on to a serious note, and sure. I, I think that talking about um, death, so one thing, and this is this is the quote that kind of brings it up for me, um, Dumbledore says to Voldemort in their um, duel at the Ministry of Magic in the Order of the Phoenix, he says um, that we both know that there's something, that, that there are things worse than death, um, and Vo Voldemort says there is nothing worse than death. What do we mean? What does he mean when he says that there are things worse than death? Um, I mean, death has this awful finality to it, um, and and there's no coming back from it. It's it, it's it's the it's very much the end of mortal life. Mm -hmm. um, so, what do you think? What 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 would you say is worse than death? Death has plagued mankind since the beginning um <laughs> like it, i mean it's it's kind of shown up in in religious systems that's formed ancient religious systems and and philosophies informed it and and shaped it um it's kind of ironic then that atheism and we see what atheism is in this rise of atheism almost puts it under the bed because it doesn't want to deal with it and it's like one of the only religious systems i can think of that actually does that um I can't really think of any others that do that. Um, hmm. Even something like, um, yeah, even something like, uh, was it Buddha? Was it Hinduism that like talks about the the, the the flame of the candle going out, the peaceful transition? I can't remember. I got to be honest, gotta, I'm gotta, unfamiliar gotta, on that one. I got to get back to my Eastern philosophy. So let's touch on something I do know a bit more. Um, I could talk about like stoicism, stoicism, and the Stoics kind of sitting there saying, you know what? We're going to greet death like an old friend. Um, mm. Right? I think it was Marcus Aurelius, I think, who basically said, uh, death smiles at every man. The only thing that man can do is smile back. Um, it's this kind of almost defiant look at death, but like, haha, I know you're coming. And that's almost like the comedy of, I know you're coming. Yeah. Um, and almost trying to get an upper hand on death. It's, um, it's the I same way that Harry um, goes willingly into the arena to fight the battle. It's sort of like this, well, it's going to happen. I might as well do it in the best way possible. I might as well willingly encounter the evil. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, like, it's a very stoic message in that story of the Deathly Hallows. Because right? you got the first two brothers oh, basically yeah. trying to go away from death and trying everything they can to beat death. Um, whereas the third brother, right, we even read later on after he comes back and he, he gives back the item to death and, or he, he, he comes back and greets death like an old friend. Yeah. It's a very stoic philosophy. And he just passes it on to his son and yeah. continues to protect his family down to, well, Harry. down to yeah. James Potter and therefore Harry Potter. Yeah. So that's really cool. But yeah, it's a very, very stoic philosophy, right? Greeting death like an old friend. The more you fight it, the worse it gets. Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, and I think... Even there's there's um, a Christian message in that too, right? We talk about um, how how Christ has broken the power of death. We sing the hymn, "Oh death, where is your sting?" Um, because we realize now that death has lost its power, and so we, just like others who greet death like an old friend, we are not afraid of death. Um, and I would suggest then that someone who has power and ambition and has that as their goal in their life. The number one thing that can take all that away is death. Yeah. And they cling to the things of this world without realizing that death will break that. And, you know, not to get, uh, oh, what's the word? Um, I sort of a uh, cliquey or anything like Cliché. that. Cliche. Cliche. Um, but, you know, no one can really take away what you give. And so, um, in terms of courage and responsibility, being things that you pour out to other people, um, it's not as if those things are taken away when you die, because that legacy 
still remains, whereas power and ambition die with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of in terms of Voldemort and death, the funny thing is, I think death was the worst thing for him, because he had split his soul so many times. You see, at the platform of the station of nine and three quarters, um, uh, when Harry's sort of in this in between the dead and the alive world, you kind of see Voldemort's um, disembodied soul. So I don't know if this was what was. I'm pretty sure this was what was part of Harry. Right. Um, just lying on the ground there. It's it's now separated from him. I'm assuming that's what it is. I think so. I think so. Um, because it's not clear in the books. Um, but but I couldn't think of what else it could be. But it's this it's this rotting like child-sized bony corpse that's 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 in a significant amount of pain. And it's like yeah, death really is the worst thing for Voldemort because he, by virtue of fleeing, virtue of by fleeing, death which is what his name means, Voldemort, mm-hmm. uh, flee from death. By trying to fly away from it and taking measures against it, he has actually truly made death the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. Mm-hmm. Um, to be a torturous, what, non-existence? Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's kind of the, uh, the funny thing about... Um, yeah... We see that theme, I think, even coming up in Lord of the Rings. I gotta bring it up again. <laughs> oh, yeah. You thought we were done. Um, oh, never. Bill talks about being 111 years old and talking about being, you know, spread thin. Like butter scraped over too much bread. <laughs> um, right? And I think we see the same thing with Smeagol. The concept of death at this point in time is. It's almost beyond him. He doesn't even care. He does care, I think, because he does fight for survival in one sense. But it's not like he's dealing with his own death. It's never in his mind. Even when he's got the ring, he's he, he's dying in the in the, the pits of Mount Doom, and he doesn't care that he's dying. He just cares that he has the ring. Right? It's just... It's the difference, I think, between fighting for his existence versus fighting for his survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and and you might think that that's not so different, but it's like... Yeah, it's. I don't think it's so much his survival that. I I wonder which one of them actually matters to him. His survival is more of an instinctual thing, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but his existence, he couldn't care less about. He pours it all into the precious. But yeah. Um, going back to the uh, the ancient schools of the Greeks, um, you see this almost. I would say it's Epicurean. I think is how the Epicureans saw death, and I mean it was a very hedonistic kind of mindset of like. What's the point of living if you don't live? Mm. Right? And, and I think you can kind of see that in Voldemort. His entire life goal was to not die. <laughs> yeah. You think about how that uh, um, how that comes, and it's like, that's kind of ironic. It's unfortunate. It's the one thing on his bucket list Yeah. was the thing that he did not achieve. Yeah. And it's really too bad, man. <laughs> and, like, he doesn't, yeah. And, like, it becomes his entire life's work to not die but he didn't live as as yeah. as, a, as a as an epicurean might say right like he, he didn't live um so yeah i don't know death can be greeted as an old friend it can be winked at peacefully or you can flee from it and i think we mm. see and harry potter of course is gonna take it a bit more of a i would say that it takes it on the stoic route of greeting yeah. death as an old friend is it the thing is, thing. when he accepts it, and he accepts it by sacrifice, he becomes the possessor of the Deathly Hallows, and he has control over it, and that's how he comes back. Right. Because he now has control over life and death. Um, uh, now, I don't know if that's for that moment or from then on. I suspect it's not from then on, because I think he dispenses with the wand. Yeah. Um, there's another character, though, who gives up his immortality in the book. Do you remember his name? Fleming? Fle- the, the creator of the uh, Philosopher's Stone. Oh, uh, Nicholas Flamel. Yes, that's his name, Flamel. That's right. Because he gives it up, right? At one point, he was, what, a hundred and... Or he was how many years old? And oh, then, he, he was he was hundreds of years old. Uh, what was it? Like, um, probably the, the... 
is sort of where medieval alchemy started meeting its end. I think it was like Renaissance era, 1500s or something. Right. And he gives the stone to Voldemort, or sorry, to, um, to Dumbledore as a, I'm done now. Yeah. I'm ready to go. Um, even he accepts death. Um, anyways, I just thought I'd bring that up. I don't know if it has any relevance I, in the conversation. But. Well, I think one thing about... Well, I think it does, because Flamel also, he... It's not so much he's cheating death. He's he's done it, like, kind of lawfully. Mm-hmm. He he hasn't done... He hasn't killed anyone for it, and um, or, or whatever is in the process of making a horcrux. It, it is certainly killing, but, you know, you wonder if there's something else involved. Um and J.K. Rowling alludes to that and often enough that makes people wonder. Some people think cannibalism, and I wouldn't be surprised. But Nicholas Flamel, it's a it's a lawful um, well, it's it's a lawful uh, element that he and he does it by purity as well. You know, pure things. Um, so there's there's a. The Philosopher's Stone not only gives the elixir of life, but it turns out any, uh, what was it, any metal into gold? Yeah. Like, yeah. There, there's a symbol of purity right there. Yeah. So, it's not tainted with evil. No. It, but you would have to be dependent on it to continue living. And I think, I think there's something to be said for the character of Dumbledore, who's basically able to step in and convince him to give it up. Because I think that's kind of what happened. I think he gave it willingly to Dumbledore, but I don't think he gave it willingly without him kind of speaking into that and kind of giving him peace in that. Mm. I feel like Dumbledore was kind of the figure of... Um, I, forget, I forget what it was. They had the um, the characters in the story of the Deathly Hallows were represented as characters in Harry Potter. Um, how, I believe it was obviously the character of um, of the guy with the wand, I forget, um, was Voldemort. The character with the cloak was Harry. Um, and would Snape be the one with the with the stone? I the think stone of so. resurrection. And I think either way, this Dumbledore was actually the representation of death. Yeah, I've heard that one uh, plenty. I wonder how deep J.K. Rowling got with that sort of um, imagery, but there's definitely been very plausible theories like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I like the Deathly Hallows. It's a good uh, conversational piece. Um, some of the other topics we wanted to touch on, and we might actually do so in the future. Um, we're going to talk about death and dementors because there's always a fun conversation there about tearing out the soul and yeah. the death by that. Yeah, and then it's just a question of you know what what what's the difference between or or where's the dividing line between the soul and the body. Right. Um, some things that we will be talking about definitely in the future with other um, uh, well with other franchises, franchises like yeah. one of them is the Dresden Files. Um, we're going to be talking about this technology versus magic theme and how they don't really mix. Yeah. Um, and you see that in Harry Potter as well. Um, but otherwise... Yeah, I mean, one of the things I wanted to briefly touch on, and we've kind of already touched on, was kind of this idea of awe of imagination. Oh, yeah. Right? It's like she's she's drawing us into the imagination of the world. We see that... I mean, we said we wouldn't talk about We're going to talk about uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. We see that mostly a lot there. Where she kind of just introduces to these creatures... And only some of them are relevant to the story. Mm-hmm. How many of them become just things that we see once and then they go away? Um, and we see that a lot in Harry Potter, where there's just some some useful plot devices, but some things we see in the Wizarding World are just completely useless. Um, right? And I think that is a nice thing, because it's basically... I think she's kind of displaying for us the the range of fantasy, as it were. Whereas Tolkien almost has like a distinct use for every piece in his story, she's kind of showing the whimsical, fun side of imagination. I right? think the different colors of of the palette, if you will. It definitely gets back to one of our earlier points where we we're talking about bringing the magic world to mm-hmm. us, whereas having us enter yeah. um, Tolkien's world of magic very very different. And I think that's why J.K. Rowling's able to. Um, leave the world open-ended in that way. The world kind of lives apart from her, and you can kind of, you know, Cursed Child is technically canon. I call it fan fiction, you know, and and you I don't touched it with a ten-foot pole. And and you don't, but you know, people generally don't accept it because because it doesn't seem to follow the rules of the already stated universe. Right. 
uh, and this universe is so open-ended, and you just kind of wonder what happens with the characters later, and you can kind of imagine yourself as if you were a student there in Hogwarts yourself. Um, and this world kind of has life apart from the author. So I, I think that's very uh, impressively done, and when you talk of the awe of imagination, it really gets back to that first point. Yeah. Which is a good way to wrap it up. Um, if you want to have a, any more conversations about death, souls, dementors, or technology versus magic before we even get to it, then feel free to have the conversation in the, in the comments. We'd like to see where you guys go with it. Yeah. We have um, a Discord server as well, and we've got discussion tabs and everything that uh, haven't been used yet. Yeah. So, And if you guys know of anyone who's kind of uh, interested in this kind of content, we'd like to have... Uh, we want to be building a community. Yeah. Um, and so I'd kind of suggest uh, just sharing this podcast with everyone who would be interested, um, or some of the previous episodes. We have episodes on... So far, we have it on... The introduction, which was storytelling, and then we've gone through Tolkien, Lewis, and now Rowling. Uh, looking forward, we're going to be going to Star Wars and a few other uh, conversational pieces going forward. After our first season, which is coming up soon to the end, um, we're going to be kind of doing deep dives into these things, whereas right now we're kind of just doing a broad stroke of, yeah. of the fantasy genre. So. so this first season was always like an introductory um, season uh, until we can start getting into some of the specifics of contemporary mythology. Um, so what we're going to do after this episode is we're going to do a Star Wars episode and then we're probably going to do a conclusion yeah, episode. So. We might take a week break in between that to, to rally up our second season. Yeah. Um, but our second season should be longer than our first one, definitely. Yeah. And, uh, and you know what, the episodes might get longer too, um, just because again, we're doing a bit more of a deep dive on these topics. So yeah, these ones are our overall themes and we really, um, and we're going to bring it all together in um, our conclusion to Season 1 episode as well. So just yep. a bit of a heads up as to where we're at. Yeah, excellent. And uh, thank you very much. As always, cheers.